friends, I am so glad you have decided once more to make Thoughtvolution your podcast of choice on this beautiful day. My name is Stefan Dubier and I'm your host. And today I want to talk to you guys about talents. Dig a little deep and try to be a little less humble than you would normally be and ask yourself what you are really, really good at. What is a gift you carry within and how are or aren't you utilizing that gift right now? I know with social media, every day can feel a bit like a competition. You might be a good dancer, but then you watch a YouTube video of somebody who dances so much better than you. Instead of even considering a career as a dancer anymore, you put your dreams to rest and bury your dancing shoes for nobody to find. Or you are a musician perhaps, and you know that you are really, really good at singing. Until you turn on TikTok and listen to this outstanding young artist with all of that courage and talent. You start comparing, your confidence begins to shrink, and you decide to mute yourself. Because how on earth could you ever compete with that? Does that sound familiar? It does to me. You know, we need to stop comparing, belittling our own talents, folding before we ever even get to play one single card. Instead, we should try everything in our power to find our niche, to chase those dreams, to discover our tribe, and to fully utilize every opportunity to shine in the unique ways only we can. I feel like, especially with social media, we have been led to believe that we need to be a copy of whatever is getting the most likes. We no longer explore the gifts and talents we hold to see where we can take them and what we can turn them into. My guest today is an incredibly talented singer-songwriter and youth education director at her church. Being a singer had been a dream of Gabby's for as long as she could remember. But, you know, life happens sometimes, and it happened in the worst possible ways for Gabby in 2004, with many losses making it impossible for her to keep singing. Bringing joy to people runs in her blood, and she was practically raised in the entertainment industry. Her mom was incredibly attractive and even ended up being a Playboy centerfold on top of working as an actress and a model. Stepdad number one worked as a character actor, stepdad number two was a game show host, and at the young age of 13, Gabby forged a relationship with no other than the amazing Dolly Parton, a relationship that has lasted for over 40 years. So, after 17 years of silence, Gabby finally found her voice again during the COVID quarantine with the first song sung by her after that long period being about Dolly. I cannot wait for you to hear about Gabby's musical rebirth, about her advocacy work for the LGBTQ community as a woman of faith, and about using your voice for greatness, kindness, love, and compassion for others. Thoughtvolutionists, Please welcome the wonderful Gabby. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about miscarriage and the loss of a child. If this subject is a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Gabby, 
It is such a pleasure and an honor to have you here with us today. We will speak a lot about music, the world of entertainment, love, faith, and of course, Dolly Parton. My first question though is, what was the last concert you attended as a fan? And what was the last song you personally listened to? The last concert that I saw was Dolly Parton. And the last song that I listened to was, it's called Diane and it's by Cam. Obviously it was Dolly Parton. Now, what are some of the other concerts that you may have attended in your lifetime that left a mark, that touched you? And why did you listen to that particular song? The reason I'm working on, or listened to that last song was because I'm working on making my sound a little bit more modern and I'm a singer. So she has a particular way of using her vibrato that I'm trying to learn. So there's that in terms of the last song that I listened to. And other concerts that I've attended, I mean, I've attended tons. I saw Michael Jackson at Dodger Stadium. I saw Bruce Springsteen. He was probably the most surprising concert I've ever been to. Like I didn't was not a big fan, but his show was incredible. I saw Garth Brooks in Central Park and I'm trying to think of like Janet Jackson and I've seen Madonna, I saw Madonna in concert. I'm more of the old-timey people. As somebody who leads such a thrilling life, where do you find your calm, your peace, your center? I'll let you know as soon as I find that calm. <laughs> no, it's, you know, I would say it's in through meditation or it's in writing music and just being in the production of it and the community of a songwriting group that I'm in. There's a lot of, you know, groundedness connecting with those people. Yeah. Let's talk about your childhood and about you pretty much growing up in the entertainment world. Tell us about your parents, about life as a kid, and about your childhood. So when I was about three years old, my mom met who was to become my first stepfather. His name was Steve Einett, and he was a character actor that probably his most famous uh, role was Lord Garth on Star Trek. And he was also on a lot of the older cowboy shows like Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And he was on Outer Limits, which was a kind of like a Twilight Zone type show. And he was a, a very well-respected actor and director. And he uh, wrote and starred in and directed a film called Don't Throw Cushions Into the Ring. And I was in the movie and my mom was in the movie and he was in the movie. And when he finished it, he took it to the Cannes Film Festival. And this was in 1972. And he died while he was there. So it was a kind of a, a shattering event. So my mom had just had my brother and who was a month old. I was six years old and she was 30 and she was a widow now. So going forward, life just took on totally different tone. And 
she was an actress and a model. She was had been a Playboy centerfold when she was younger and an incredibly beautiful woman. And I would say within a year or two, she met my, who was to become my second stepfather. And his name is Peter Marshall. And he was the host of the original Hollywood Squares. And beginning fairly early, we would go and meet him at the studio for dinner. And they had dinner at the commissary. And so, you know, the way Hollywood Squares is set up, there are nine celebrities in the squares. And each week had a different set of celebrities. And they filmed two weeks each week. So it's kind of complex. But that meant that there were 18 new celebrities every week that we would have dinner with. And I certainly had some of my favorites. Paul Lind, who was the center square, he was really a neat man and certainly one of the first LGBTQ people that I ever knew of. And let's see, Florence Henderson, who was the mother on the Brady Bunch. She was one of my favorites. And George Goebel, who was an old, old time comic guy. He was, he was a, a neat man. And Joan Rivers was also one of the kindest, just a really sweet, sweet person. And I actually, my stepdad, Peter would perform. He would, he was a singer also, and he would perform in like Las Vegas or in Lake Tahoe. And he would open for people like Joan Rivers, Bill Cosby, Bob Newhart, you know, any of the comics, he would be the singing act that came on before they came on. So I had like a sleepover with Melissa Rivers and a couple of times when Peter was opening for her in Las Vegas or Reno or Tahoe, I can't remember which. I also had a sleepover at Bill Cosby's and I look back and, and, and that's just a very complex thing, but it's, it was a very fun household. It was interesting and playing the radio at, at dinner and breakfast and, you know, blasting music and singing and laughing. And it was completely opposite of what we've learned since. So that was very interesting as a, as a child. It was definitely a different experience. I, I remember one time the makeup lady was learning how to do makeup. She was taking a class at, um, through Universal Studios on how to do scary makeup. And so I must have been like, I don't know, 11 or 12. And she decided to do this gaping wound on my wrist as if my wrist had been just totally cut open. And so she did it. And I decided, oh, this will be a great idea. I'll go running into the place where everybody's having dinner. And I'll be like, ah, you know, this hurts. And I went running in. And my mother was like freaking out, like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I was like, just kidding. And Paul Lynn just looked at everybody and said, kids. It was very funny. It was a very funny thing. But yeah, I almost got in trouble for that one. And I'm trying to think, um, when I was about 17, Peter and my mom separated. And, and so that life just went in another direction. So it was kind of what you would imagine a typical Hollywood family, you know, a mom and a dad and a dad and a dad <laughs> kind of a thing. But, but, you know, as much sorrow as there was, like after losing my stepdad, 
there was as much joy and as much adventure and as much really unique experiences. I really wonder, what was a regular day in your life like as a kid, if there's such a thing in this very glamorous but also highly unusual world for a child? Well, I would say that a regular day for me wasn't that different from many people. I I would go to a, a school, went to regular school, and would come home from school. And for me, I had a lot of struggles in school because I had uh, undiagnosed ADHD. And so trying to get homework done and stuff like that tended to be a little bit harder for me. And I would say one difference probably was that my parents weren't around a lot. Like they, they were busy. And so um, they would travel and they would, you know, were working. And so we had like a housekeeper or somebody that would pick us up from school and take us to school and, and handle those kinds of things. So I would say that was probably one of the differences. But I, I went to a regular school and I had friends and, you know, hung out with them. I do wish that I had known I had ADHD because I think that would have made a huge difference in my life. But we didn't know. So I know we will speak a lot about Dolly Parton in a bit. And obviously, the two of you go way back. But right now, I wonder who some of your other heroes or role models were growing up, especially when you were surrounded by so many celebrities. Was it celebrities or was it perhaps more the regular person, the teacher, the friend? Who were some people that you were looking up to as a child? And other than Dolly, who are some people you're looking up to now? I would say... Um, I had three favorites when I was younger, and aside from the obvious, I loved Donna Summer, and I loved Barbara Streisand. Like those, Dolly, Donna Summer, and Barbara Streisand were my three favorites. And I got to meet Donna Summer, which was really cool. And I'm trying to think of some people. My vocal coaches when I was younger, I started singing when I was 13. And so the teachers that I worked with, I really, I worked with them for 25 years and I, they were like family to me. I loved them. It was Sally and Lee Sweetland and they were just really amazing people. And so I would say they had a huge impact in my life. And my uncle Wayne was hugely impactful in my life. I admired him. He was also a musician, a singer, songwriter, musician. And he was probably the single most important man in my life, I would say. And and today, who are some people that I look up to? I, I look up to people that are honest and genuine and are able to really be themselves regardless of what that looks like. So like, I'm the kind of person that if I ask you, how are you? I actually want to know like the real, how are you not? Oh, I'm great. You know, I want to know how you're really doing. So people who are deep and genuine and uh, open, those are the kinds of people that I admire today. And, you know, it's interesting, I but I recently watched that Taylor Swift documentary and I was really, really impressed with her her shift in talking about politics in this day and age. I thought she had remained non-political for her entire career. 
And suddenly she was like, I can't do that anymore. Stakes are too high. And, and I thought that I really admired that. I thought I was incredibly impressed with that choice. Now, I know that music is not just something you consume. It's also something that you make. How did you yourself get interested in music? And what was it that drew you to the genre of music you are now in? Well, when I first heard Dolly Parton, and it was the Here You Come Again song, I think it was her first pop crossover song. I was like 12 years old. And it was like instantly I got, that's what I want to do. Like that, I, that's what I want to do. And I would sing to her albums and stuff in my room. And I guess my parents overheard and they kind of thought I had a gift. And so they brought me to my vocal coaches, uh, Lee and Sally Sweetland, and said, hey, does she have any talent? Or are we just parents that are really proud of her and, you know, <laughs> love everything she does? And they heard me and and said, yeah, she does have talent. And we would we would work with her and we we don't work with teenagers, but we'll work with her. So I started training with them when I was 13. And I was mainly training, like singing Broadway type music and, and opera. Like those were the things that I was training for. I wanted to do, my voice was more aligned with musical theater type music. And so I started doing those kinds of things, but it didn't, it's like my voice didn't match my face or my body. And so I had like a really mature, big voice for a young person. And so they would look at me when I would go to auditions and things, they would look at me and say, well, we don't know what to do with you because you don't fit into it. And so, you know, I started singing with my uncle's band. I sang backup and sang a few songs of my own with him and that was more like acoustic rock kind of music. And and then I sort of moved more into doing pop kind of music. And I never really quite fit in with that style of music. So, so I find myself, since I've come back to singing, I find myself doing more singer-songwriter style music. And, and I would say... I can't really do anything without it having some musical theater peppered in there, regardless of what genre I'm writing or doing, because I, I just think that is so ingrained in me after so much training in that area. But I am, I've started singing lessons again and am working hard at modernizing my voice, I would say. And when I say modernize, what I mean is, is update my sound, because if I'm, I'm in a new genre, so I'm doing singer-songwriter genre. That doesn't really look the same or sound the same as musical theater, which is has a more kind of old-timey feel to it. So I'm updating my sound. I know that faith plays a huge role in your life. At the same time, you're also an advocate for LGBTQ rights. How do you reconcile the two? And... How do they go hand in hand for you? So even when I was younger, I had kind of a calling to God or spirituality. And I came out when I was 19. And throughout my journey of looking for some kind of a spiritual path, 
I would find myself in all these different kinds of churches. And inevitably, in every church, the first words out of the minister's mouth were something like, homosexuality is an abomination. I mean, it was uncanny. I would think to myself, how did they know I was here? Like, who told them that this was, you know, that I was here? And I had a real hard time finding my way because I I kept feeling drawn to the Bible and I kept feeling drawn to God. And then I would hear these contradictory statements. And finally, I decided that I wanted to become a minister. And I looked around all of Los Angeles for ministerial schools or churches that accepted LGBTQ people. And I found a place that not only was like open and affirming, but they they had a metaphysical interpretation of the Bible. And what that means is they look at all of the symbols and all of the names and all of the stories in the Bible as symbols, like as, for example, the Apostle Peter isn't the Apostle Peter. He also means faith. So when Jesus goes to gather his 12 apostles, well, what we know in the story is that there were way more than 12 apostles, but the number 12 has a significance. 12 tribes of Israel. If you look at astrology, right, there's the 12 signs, there's the 12 apostles, there's 12 months of the year, there's, it has a meaning to it. And each apostle has a quality that Jesus was gathering. So in order to achieve, you know, enlightenment or to bring heaven on earth, Jesus had to gather will and strength and faith and have imagination and wisdom and love, all these different qualities. And each apostle actually contains one of these qualities. And so you could look at any story that contains Peter, and you know that it's a story about faith. You can look at any story that has John in it, and the word you know, the name John is love. And so there was like a a whole new way of interpreting all the different stories in the Bible. So when I started to look at the language that was used around or that was used against LGBTQ people from the church, it wasn't, there was no homosexuality at the time. That was a term that came about in the 1800s. it's, It's not actually in the Bible. So I had to look at what what were they saying? Well, man shall not lie with man. So what does that mean symbolically? Well, if you're looking at the symbols of male and female, you're looking at one is like an action and the other is a receptivity or a an openness. So if a person, let's say all the characters in the Bible are within us, okay? So man shall not lie with man has nothing to do with men outside of me. It has to do with me. If I'm, if I don't have receptivity and action, then I'm not going to be in the right alignment with God in my life. We need to have both qualities within us. That's the main thing. It's not about external things at all, because otherwise we can't touch a football. We can't wear mixed fibers. All of us are sinners in that case because 
we have a poly blend shirt. So as I started to look at all the language that was about LGBTQ folks, I realized that there were flaws in how people were interpreting that information. And Jesus never mentions it. And you would think that if it was really critical, Jesus would have mentioned it. And it is the single most important topic on religious people's minds right now. And yet Jesus never mentioned it. And I find that shocking, frankly. So for me, once I realized that God wasn't saying gay people are bad, I was okay with it. Once I understood how to interpret this information, how to interpret these stories, it was like receiving the, you know, the key code to unlocking the secret meaning of what's really going on in the Bible. And, and so I've had no problem reconciling. I totally understand why people who take the words literally would have a problem reconciling it, but I don't take the words literally. Since we are recording this episode in June, we are currently celebrating Pride Month. Yet many people in the LGBTQ community sadly still feel very much unseen, forgotten, misunderstood, hated. What would your word of advice to anyone in that community feeling small and insignificant be? And what would you, as somebody who is very much at home in the limelight, say to motivate a fellow LGBTQ artist in the midst of these uncertain times? I would say a couple of things. I recently released um, a cover song of Dolly Parton's Two Doors Down, and I made the decision to change the pronoun from I asked him if he'd like to be alone and we started walking to to the pr correct pronoun for me, which would be I asked her if she'd like to be alone and we started walking. And when I decided to release it that way, it it actually was a little bit nerve wracking and I was scared to do it. And I'm 57 years old. I came out when I was 19. That's a long time being out. But with the environment the way it is right now, it, you know, it, it gave me pause. Let me just say that, that it gave me pause. And, but I do think it's important to be true to who I am. And, you know, I also posted recently a, something on TikTok that was about the trans stuff and, and also about abortion rights. And I was putting myself out there because it was like a little snippet of a song that I had written. But I think it's important right now not to be silent. And I guess the advice that I would give younger artists that are might be hesitant about putting themselves out there, first, I would say, wait until you are comfortable with where you are and who you are. And then I would say that the majority of people do support you. The louder voices are not the majority. And I think we have to remind ourselves of that because their voices are so loud. But I think it's a huge percent, 70 or something percent, or I don't know, it's a huge percent that support LGBTQ rights. Um, they are finding newer ways to divide us, I think, with some of the trans youth gender-affirming care issues. But it's important for us to stay connected with each other and to stay focused and to really just be who we are comfortable being when we're being in public, if that makes sense. Tragedy really struck you in 2004. You mentioned the big word 
loss. Can you tell us more about that and why it not only was a loss that you will define in a minute, but also something that affected you so deeply that you quote-unquote lost your voice? So in late 2003, my partner at the time and I were we had decided we were going to start a family. And we obviously couldn't do it the typical way. And so we went uh, to get in vitro fertilization. And um, my partner was the carrying parent. And she got pregnant and was pregnant in January of 2004. And I believe she miscarried in February of 2004. And it was, um, it was difficult miscarriages are difficult there's no doubt but i i had at the time had already started recording a a cd of spiritual music and so i was going to release it in april so i had to sort of push through and carry on and in april i released my cd and i started going to all the different new thought churches and and singing and promoting it and that kind of a thing and then in july of 2004, my brother passed away. He'd had um, a long illness and half of it was addiction and half of it was out of control diabetes. So it, it came out of nowhere in terms of him being 32 and they were he was in the hospital, but they were going to release him because he was too healthy to be in the hospital. And yet he managed to just, uh, his heart just stopped. And uh so that was in July and that was pretty, but it, I wasn't going to lose my voice with that. And in October, I lost a dear friend that I had been friends with since I was like seven years old. And she was an older woman that had been a neighbor and I just loved her like a grandma to me. And uh, she passed away in October and, and then my partner had like, suddenly we had a difficult pregnancy because she had gotten pregnant and she had to go on bed rest for like 11 weeks. And throughout that time, I really believed that things were going to go okay, that the baby was going to be good. It was going to be all right. It might be a rough ride, but that she was going to make it. And we knew it was a baby girl. And on December 22nd, she was born and 19 and a half hours later, she died in our arms. And I would say that that was, it was the straw on the camel's back. It was, or that broke the camel's back. It was the most devastating moment of my life. And I tried to go and sing again in churches, but in the teachings that are under the New Thought umbrella, there's this idea that your thoughts create your reality. And I actually had people say to me, well, you must have, you must not have had strong enough thoughts or she would have made it. And I was just, it was just like pouring salt in a wound and it was started to lose faith in, at, in anything spiritual. Like it just really started to fall away. And I was going to sing at this one church and thank God this one minister gave a sermon that had something to do with grief. And I remember thinking, this is a safe person that I can talk to because as a minister, I'm not supposed to be doubting my faith, you know? So I went up to her and I said, I'm really struggling because the teachings say that our thoughts create our reality. And 
I've had people say to me, well, you know, you must not have had, you must have had a negative thought in order to have your daughter pass away. And I'm having a hard time reconciling that. And she just took my hands in her hands and she looked me dead in the eye and she said, we do not have dominion over another soul's journey. And that was one of the most powerful statements that I'd ever heard. And I realized that I needed to take a step back from ministry and I needed to take a step back from singing because I couldn't connect with the message anymore. And I had to figure out, like I had to go back to the basics and figure out what it is I really believed. And she gave me the beginnings of what I now understand is that there's there are these principles or these teachings that are spoken in a really simple way, like your thoughts create your reality. That's kind of a flippant way of saying something when there's really a complex meaning under it. And so just to say that statement, I feel like it's almost spiritually irresponsible because so many people could be wounded by that statement, thinking that they caused something with a thought. You know, like I I actually had a client that came to me and said, that they were 10 years old, they were angry at their parents, and they had a, they just for a second wished they were dead. And like two weeks later, his parents were killed in a car accident. And he, as an adult, thought he was responsible for that because of the teaching that your thoughts create your reality. And that is so irresponsible to stick someone with that kind of a, of a, a belief because it's false. It's just false. That is not the case. Now, can your thoughts create your experience of reality? Absolutely. But can it alter the direction of another person's life? No, it can't. And so that was a really profound lesson for me, but I think it took me a very long time to find my way back to faith and trusting God. And And I didn't sing until COVID came along. And that's what, 17 years later. You mentioned the pandemic as the time period where you would find your voice again. Now, you went from tragedy in 2004 to a time that was tragedy for all of us beginning in 2020. How and in what way did you find your voice during that profound time that was so difficult for all of us? Well, about four years ago, I uh, started a job with a church in Asheville area, and I'm the youth education director. And when the pandemic hit, we had to figure out a way to continue to offer spiritual lessons for the kids. And knowing those kids, I thought, well, how am I going to keep them entertained and engaged? Because us just, you know, blathering on about some spiritual teaching, they're not going to be engaged with that. So I thought, well, maybe I need to like learn the ukulele and sing little simple songs and stuff. So I started to do that. And as I did these videos, I started getting more advanced with my recording techniques. And then I got a green screen and I started getting fancier with the video production. And then I started turning 
modern songs into spiritual songs. And it just got bigger and bigger because I had all the time in the land. Like I would spend 65 hours a week on these videos. <laughs> it was just, and I had time to learn the the editing software and and learn the the like I started on GarageBand and then I moved up to Logic Pro on my Mac and you know I I expanded from just the ukulele to using the instrumentation within the program and my productions got more and more advanced and and so and I got I mean being that long having not sung my voice was not in the same shape that it had been and and I would say being raised in the entertainment industry in the shadow of people that were, you know, supremely talented and, and what was on screen was like perfection, right? I developed a perfectionist type personality when it came to my singing. And so I had to let go of all that because I had to complete a video a week. I didn't have time to like do all this extra stuff and re-record it and make sure it was this. And I, I just, if it was, if it was imperfect, it was imperfect and it had to go out that way. And week after week, after week, after week for like, I think it was 48 weeks, we did it. And I started getting my voice back and I started feeling like I was having fun doing it. And I would have to say that way back when, when I was singing, I didn't necessarily have fun because it had to be perfect. It had to be of a, a level of excellence that I don't think anyone could actually reach. And when I was put in this situation during the pandemic that I had to produce, and it wasn't going to be perfect, that it actually gave me a freedom to find a new voice. And, and I really think I have had a really good time finding the voice that I wish I'd had when I was 25, you know, but Hey, it's better late than never. Now, tell us everything we need to know about you, Dolly, your history with each other, how it all began, and how Dolly pretty much helped you find your own voice. So because my stepdad was Peter Marshall, I was afforded a lot of opportunities. And one of them was that Dolly had been on... Hollywood Squares one time. And so he was able to get me backstage passes to the very first concert of hers that I went to. It was September 24th, 1979. And it was at the Universal Amphitheater. And it was an awesome show. And I got to go backstage and meet her for the first time. And that was amazing. A very brief, you know, meeting. And it was the next like year in February of 1980, that my dad took me to the set of nine to five, and I got it to hang out for the entire day. And that was, I mean, unbelievable. I remember he was talking to Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, and, and I come running up and I'm like, dad, dad, you're not going to believe it. Dolly said, blah, 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 or, you know, something like that. And he was like, oh, well, this is Lily and this is Jane. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, Dolly was, you know, I, I was so excited about Dolly that it didn't even matter that I just met Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. <laughs> so today as an adult, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I had paid more attention. But it was cute because I had brought a garbage bag filled with gifts for her. Like I'd made this butterfly out of 
like a 3D butterfly made out of cardboard and glitter and spray paint and all this stuff. So when I pulled it out of the trash bag, it got glitter like all over her trailer and everything. But um, but I gave her that and I gave her a picture of me dressed up as her in my, my Halloween costume. And she enjoyed looking at that as she flicked a little piece of glitter off of it. It was just really cool. And then I also gave her a demo tape of me singing the very first version of Two Doors Down that I had done at 13. And she said, oh, well, I'll have a listen and I'll give you a call and I'll let you know what I think. And I was so excited. And, you know, then the rest of the day I hung around as they filmed different scenes and stuff like that. And when I got home, Peter was saying to me, you know, I just want to let you know that she's a very busy woman and she probably won't call. You know, he just wanted me to not get my hopes up too high. And I was like, oh, no, she said she's going to call. She will call. I believed. So each day I'd come running home from school. Did Dolly call? Nope, she hasn't called. All right. So then the next day, running home from school. Did Dolly call? Nope, she didn't call. All right. So I think it was on a Saturday. And by this point, I had forgotten whether she was going to call or not call. And the phone rang. So I wasn't paying any attention anymore because there were so many false alarms that I just, you know, let it go. And all of a sudden, I hear my mother running down the stairs. Gabby, Gabby, Dolly's on the phone. So I ran upstairs, got all excited. I got on the phone and she said, well, hello, star. It was so sweet. And she said, you sound like a cross between me, Linda Ronstadt and Barbara Streisand. And I was like, wow, it, it was really, really cool that she called me. So over the years, I would go and see her on all the different sets, you know, whatever she was working on. I'd, I'd go backstage at The Tonight Show, which was just down the hall from where Hollywood Squares was filmed. So it wasn't that difficult for me to just pop over there. So when she was on The Tonight Show, I would go visit her. And when she had concerts, I would go backstage. And if she... Whenever she was doing anything in the Los Angeles area, I would make sure and get backstage and visit her. So when I was about 17, I had tried a few times to get together for lunch or for dinner or something like that. But when I was 17, I went to the set of, it was Rhinestone. She was filming with Sylvester Stallone at the time. And I visited her for the day and I said, you know, I'd love to take you to dinner sometime. There's a place called Stanley's in Sherman Oaks that serves really great apple pie. And I knew she loved apple pie. So uh, she said, oh, I love that place. Let, let's go. So a couple of days later, one of her people called me and said, we will have a car pick you up and bring you to the Disney ranch where they're going to be filming some scenes for the movie. And then afterwards, you guys will watch the dailies, which are basically sections that they filmed the day before that they're now going to review today. And then after the dailies, we were going to go to dinner. So I spent the whole day on the set and, and then she and I got in the car and we went to dinner and it was like the night of my teenage life. I mean, it was just an amazing night, just the two of us having dinner and talking about all the things that you could talk about. You know, she gave me advice as a singer about, you know, persistence and just keep doing what you want to do. 
And we talked about family. We talked about all kinds of things. It just was a great night. We had avocado slices with Tabasco sauce on it and champagne and chili, a bowl of chili. We both had the exact same thing. And and yes, I was 17 and I had some champagne. (laughs) So there was that. And then she came back to our place and it was like, you know, midnight or something. And she came in and had a drink. My, my, uh, folks had had a Christmas party that night. And so there were still a couple of people left at the house and she came into the house, busted through the door and just said, where's the party? And everybody said, we're in here. So she came in and they all had a drink and we talked more about, you know, music. And and then somebody said, Gabby, do you have that album that has, they were trying to find a musician that my uncle knew that had played on one of her albums. So I said, well, I've got that album. Let me go check. So I went into my room, which happened to be a shrine of Dolly Parton. I mean, there were posters, life-size cutouts of Dolly on my wall and a, a Dolly Parton jacket and just pictures and records hung everywhere. My whole room was just a Dolly Parton room. And I'm in there looking for the album. And all of a sudden, I hear walking down the hall, her heels clip-clop on the wood floor. She's coming to my bedroom. So she walks in and she looks around and she says, wow, you really are a fan of mine. (laughs) And I was like mortified, but I actually have a photo of her standing in my bedroom amongst all of her photos. It was really, really, really fun. So that was a a neat night. And since then, you know, I've seen her many times. There was a period of time, I think when I got a little bit older, like reality set in where I wasn't really in that fairy tale world. So I was probably 21. And I think it occurred to me that she was actually Dolly Parton. And I would, I think I started to think to myself, like, what what would she, why would she even remember me? Or what would she even want to know me, you know, kind of a thing. And I got a little bit self-conscious around it. And so I didn't feel as confident or brave to reach out to her. So I stopped for like eight years and I was, you know, went on to my spiritual studies and I was taking a class on channeling as those of us did in California, certainly in Los Angeles, we were taking channeling classes. So I was taking this channeling class and basically what that means is listening to spirit and spirit you know, talks to you and and that kind of a thing. So the message that I got in that class that day were two words, don't delay. And so I thought, well, maybe that has to do with my career or something. But when I brought it up after uh, the meditation, when I brought it up to the teacher, she said, no, I'm getting that it has something to do with this week and you'll know it when it comes up. So that was on Monday. On Wednesday morning, I woke up kind of early. And I was just laying there thinking, I just thought about Dolly and I thought, I miss her. And suddenly I heard the words, don't delay, don't delay, don't delay. And I just kept hearing them going over and over in my head. And I thought, well, what does that mean? And it had been eight years since I'd been in touch. So I didn't even know any of the people to get in contact with. I didn't know that was in a transition in her career where she had shifted agents and things like that. So I didn't know how to get in touch. I thought, well, I wonder if she's going to be on The Tonight Show, because that's like the easiest way to see her 
because they're filming that day. So I looked in the TV guide because back then we had real paper TV guides. So I looked on Friday. Is she going to be on the Tonight Show on Friday? No. Is she going to be on the Tonight Show on Thursday? No. What about today? Is she going to be on today? So I looked and there it is. She was going to be on the Tonight Show that day, which it's now 1030 in the morning and they film at four in the afternoon. So I just got one of her albums out and one of her CDs and I looked on there to see if there was a contact, like a production company or somebody to contact. And so her agent was listed on there. So I called them and I just like took a risk and I said, Hey, I'm an old acquaintance of Dolly's and I haven't seen her in, you know, several years. And I saw that she's going to be on the tonight show tonight. Would it be possible for me to go and visit her? And they took my information and said, you know, we'll call you back. So I, I just felt accomplished having busted through that, that disbelief, you know, that thing where I wouldn't believe that she would want to know me or here she is, Dolly Parton. How on earth can I expect that, you know, she would want to talk to me kind of a thing and got back to that childhood innocence of, Hey, call Dolly. You know, I, I just had a, a chutzpah about me when I was younger that I had lost. So I was just excited that I had made the call and it didn't matter what she said, you know? So 10 minutes later, I got a call back and they just said, Dolly said she'd love to see you, said it had been ages and, you know, fantastic. There'll be a drive on for you at NBC and, you know, just go backstage. So I did all that and we got to visit and it just was such a nice visit talking about family, talking about, you know, I think at the time she had had, uh, it's like, it was like a, a downturn in her career. And so, you know, she was, I think she was trying to drum up some movies and things like that. Like she was just sharing those kinds of things with me. And I was sharing my family stuff with her. And it just was a really, really nice visit. And it was great to be re in touch with her. And, and then of course, when I moved to Asheville, one of the upsides of moving to Asheville was that it was an hour and a half away from, or an hour and 50 minutes from Dollywood. And I recently saw her for my birthday, which was really fun. So for the last 16 years or so, when I go to visit her, I, I go to Dollywood and see her there. And it was really fun when I got to introduce her to my son because she just thought he was the most beautiful child that ever was. I mean, it was really, really sweet. She wrote me a note after seeing him and just saying, you must be so proud. He's, he's just the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. It was so cute, but she's probably one of the kindest, most generous people I know and has always been kind to me, has always given me her time. And I mean, I was just, when I think about it, I was just a goofy teenager that adored her and she gave me the time of day. And then I became a goofy adult and she gave me the time of day. You know, she's always been really respectful. And when, when I saw that she had donated a million dollars toward the vaccination, I was like, why can't the world look to her as an example and do what she would do? Like whenever we're in a position where we have to make a decision, let's, let's ask ourselves, 
what would Dolly do? And then let's do that. And then I thought, well, I'm going to write a song called What Would Dolly Do? And so during that time, I wrote that song, What Would Dolly Do? And I, after I finished producing it and, and all of that, I sent it to her. And she emailed me back that same day and just said, wow, what a great vocal. What a, you know, it's so commercial sounding. And she just was so flattered that I thought so highly of her. And, and she said she'd listen to it when she needed, needed a lift for herself, which I thought, wow, you know, that I feel like I've, I've accomplished it. The thing, like whatever that, that one big accomplishment that you need in your life, that was it, you know? So that was a a profound experience. I remember later thinking about the song and, and being so grateful that, that I was the one who wrote it and not somebody else cuz somebody else could have written a song like that and and I was the one who wrote it and it meant something to her and I I'm really grateful for that as somebody who knows one of the kindest most generous and genuine people in the public eye you sometimes ask in your songs like you say what would dolly do were there moments in your life when you turned to her for answers or to her music for answers I wouldn't say that I've gone to her directly for answers, but her music has certainly accompanied me through everything in my life. And um, I would say looking to her as a lighthouse or as a guide in the dark, um, I have always looked to her for that kind of light. And in my song, that I want to share with you guys, the What Would Dolly Do song, is this idea of when looking for direction, ask yourself one critical question. What would Dolly do? And there are so many things in the world right now that I feel like if people would just stop what they're doing and ask in any given moment, I'm faced with this situation, Hmm. I wonder what Dolly would do and then do that, you know, and I list just a couple of things like how she gave everyone money to start to rebuild their homes after they all burnt down in Gatlinburg and, you know, creating jobs in Pigeon Forge when they, you know, had an economic downturn. That's when she bought that park and turned it into Dollywood. And, you know, those kinds of things. And at the time during the pandemic, I have one version that's out that says, we've been living life in isolation, physically apart. She gave us hope with a vaccination and music in her heart. And first, I thought it was really cool that I got the word vaccination into a song and it rhymed. And but now I've changed the bridge to be more today so that it's not back in the pandemic. And and the words are, we've got politics and disinformation tearing us apart. The way she lives is an inspiration giving from her heart. And, and then I go, you know, into what would Dolly do? To me, it's just, she's an example for us all. So here you go, guys. Ask yourself that question as you listen to Gabby's song, What Would Dolly Do? It seems our world has problems 
that we just can't solve. We can't agree on anything. Goodwill has dissolved. But there is one solution to everything we face. A certain kind of guidance we can all embrace. Gabby, thank you so much for this incredibly interesting conversation about your life, about Dolly, about the entertainment world. I learned so much, and it was an honor to have you here. Now, if people want to find out more about you, about your life, your work, your music, what can they do? Where can they go? Well, they can go to gabbymichael.com, and it's G-A-B-Y. M-I-C-H-E-L. There's no A in there. Or you can go to uh, Instagram or uh, Facebook or TikTok 
You can find me at Gabby Michael Music. And I think on Instagram, there might be underscores like Gabby underscore Michael underscore music. My dear thought evolutionists, our journey through another enlightening episode has reached its sunset. Today, we got to share the harmonious tale of Gabby, whose life has been a symphony of music, faith, love, and advocacy. With her friendship with Dolly Parton as a guiding light and her profound commitment to her church and the LGBTQ community, she's been a melody of inspiration. I hope that her song resonated with you and you find yourself occasionally asking, what would Dolly do? You can discover more about Gabby and her music by following her on social media at Gabby Michael Music or by visiting her website at GabbyMichaelNoA.com. The link is available in the show notes as well. My friends, as we pull the curtains on today's conversation, we look ahead with anticipation. We're just one episode away from the grand finale of Thoughtvolution's first season. And let me tell you, you're in for a thrilling, heart-wrenching ride with a homicide survivor sharing her compelling story right here next week. You won't want to miss it. But as we glance towards the end of our current journey, we're also mapping out the path for season two. We're in search of incredible people just like Gabby, who are ready to share their life journeys, their triumphs, their trials, their revelations. If you feel the calling of inspiration and are ready to take the first step towards sharing your story, please visit thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. There you'll find our intake form, fill it out, and I promise to get back to you as soon as I can. Your story deserves an audience. I eagerly await your message. If you found value in our conversations and wish to support this podcast, this labor of love, there are several ways to do so. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe on all major podcast apps. Follow us on social media platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Just search for Thoughtvolution. Moreover, you can visit our merch store at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, pick up a cool t-shirt, a comfy sweater, or a stylish hat, your support means the world to me, and by wearing our merchandise, you take Thoughtvolution with you, potentially sparking meaningful dialogues. Community and active listening are the cornerstones of what we do here. Gabby's unique story from her roots in the entertainment industry to her humble and grateful demeanor echoes Dolly Parton's grace and resonates deeply with these values. It serves as a reminder that humility and kindness should guide our path in this world. As we part today, I invite you to reflect on this. How can you embody humility and extend kindness to a fellow human this week? Carry this question with you, let it inspire your actions. I can't wait to reconnect for our season finale next week. Until then, remember to always be kind to each other it's more important than you might realize. I love you lotsies, my thought evolutionists. <laughs>